another episode of The People's Game. Your favourite footy nuffies are here to discuss Daisy's Night on the Claret, Gaza, Sniping Snipper with a cheeky right, Brad Scott's axing, and so much more. Gordon, yes, the esteemed editor of Footy Live is here, despite some severe pre-cricket World Cup jitters. And, of course, the doctor of fandom, one Casey Simons, is also in the booth, though she's about to depart the winds of Melbourne winter for a little bit of a European summer siesta. So, team, how are we? Very good, JB. How are you? I'm up and about. It's about the point in the year where we start looking at the ladder and stop looking at the ledger. Can I ask what that means? means you stop talking about teams in terms of four and two or six and four and you start going, no, they're fourth. Now you have less like teams on the same ledger and so the relative becomes more important than the win-loss. Except for this year when there's like eight teams on the same points. I still think it's a foolproof theory because I've now started looking at the ladder for the first time. <laughs> and so clearly I speak for every footy fan that has ever yes. lived, breathed and existed. And, yeah. the, and- J- the JV fan theory of fandom. Yeah. Like, every- everyone is like me. Everyone bags for Richmond. There is clearly only one way of thinking. <laughs> At this point, it's like it's it's admissible now. It's admissible evidence in the scheme of the footy landscape to go. You know what? No, Richmond are fourth. So, will you from now on solely tip based on ladder position? No, because I've stopped doing my tips. Ooh, what yeah. controversial? So I started off in a rage, in a blaze of glory, as I normally do, and then wobble. After about three days of three rounds. Three days. <laughs> After the entirety of round one, I was like, no, I am terrible at tipping. The Saturday. Well, actually, I got like two out of nine in the first week. And then I got to like round four and I was like, you know what? Dream team on a Thursday night. Oh, fuck it. I can't be bothered. Much the same with the tips. I just don't care. They're so easy to do, though. You have to just press nine buttons. Gordon, I was 170th out of 174 in the footy almanac tipping comp when I was doing them. Yeah, I think that's a good call that you gave up. <laughs> and I wasn't Have you improved them. since? No, I've, well, I've stopped doing them, so I don't know. And I clearly wasn't getting anywhere in Supercoach because everyone was sucking and no amount of trading was going to fix it, so I've mm. given up on that as well. I'm currently coming second in my family footy tipping, and it's getting pretty brutal. And you've told me that this is not, you say, family. I'm like, oh, that's five people, so you're not doing too bad, but it's not in the Simons clan. Yeah, no, it's about 30. It's all the extended aunties, uncles, and cousins, and, um, yeah, lots of banter. It's um, it's all for glory, and I'm losing to my mum at the moment. I'm coming for her. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. So we're going to launch into our hot pies. I'm going to start off with yours, Case, um, because you have your European fiesta, siesta, call it what you want coming up, and I'm excited to hear about where you're actually going to be when you leave us in four days' time. Yeah, my hot pie's a bit of me time, so apologies to everyone, but I'm just going to be talking about my awesome holiday. <laughs> it's, um, it's not a holiday, it's a working trip. <laughs> <laughs> But I will be doing a lot of work, so don't worry about me, but I will fit in lots of play as well, as I always try to do. But yeah, I'm heading off to the UK on Sunday. I'm very excited. Um, First stop is Manchester. I'm heading off to the International Football History Conference, which I'm super excited about. I'll actually be speaking at that conference um, about the essay that we discussed uh, in the last edition of the podcast that was recently published in Athlon, the Journal of Sports Literature. So I'm really excited to um, talk to that essay and present to that group of people. That conference is really cool. It's actually based at um, Manchester City's um, campus there, opposite Etihad Stadium. So it's a really great facility. You get to see some really cool things. And the conference is actually held in their media centre. So when you get up and deliver your paper, you're in front of like the media wall and it's like you're sort of giving a message to all the 
journalist. So the journalist in me really enjoys that process. So that's going to be really fun. And then I'm going to do something really cool, which just came across my radar a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to go visit um, a little place called Nottingham, which is just a couple of hours outside of Manchester. I'm going to go pay a visit to their women's library for a specific reason. They've started a really cool campaign to um, increase the number of books they have in their women's library that are about women in sport or written by women on sport. As they, they called out on social media oh, about a month ago just for donations, and I think they started out with four books and now they're up to 70. So I tried to sort of encourage some people in my network if they had some women in sport books that were from like an Australian perspective to sort of hit me up so I could take some over there and donate them and they would have a bit of a Australian flavour. And I really got some great ones. So I'm really grateful. Um, the first author I really wanted to shout out to in this little segment was an author called S.R. Silcox, who kindly gave me a couple of her books. She's a really interesting author who's written some great um, YA fiction um, about young girls playing cricket. So that's a really cool sort of thing to take over there with me, which I'm really excited to share. So I just wanted to thank her for sending me those books in good faith that I'm going to deliver them, which I will, and I'm very excited to. And then I'm going to be taking over Sam Lane's book. Um, someone yes. gave me a copy of that to take over, which I'm really excited about because I love that book so much. So very happy to share the AFLW stories with um with the UK and then I'm going to be a bit uh, self-indulgent and take some of the books I've been published in and co-edited as well so just because and because I can. I'm absolutely for putting yourself on international bookshelves <laughs> at any given opportunity. Oh yeah, I'm so excited. I just want to be on a bookshelf. And then uh, then we're going to Paris. Yes, uh, so I'll be heading over to Paris and also uh, Limoges. So the next conference I'll be attending will be the Sports Literature Conference which is uh, in a place called Limoges which is in Bordeaux. So I've never been to that region before so I'm very very excited. Wine country. Wine oh, country. So much wine. Um, yeah, so keen. Uh, so that's going to be really great. I'm actually going to be doing some presentations there based on um, my sports fiction. So that's going to be really cool. So that's a whole different vibe again, which I'm really excited about. And then because I'm going to be in France in a few weeks, it sort of coincides with the Women's World Cup. So I've got tickets to one game so far. Hopefully, hopefully I can squish in another one. Um, we'll see how we go. But oh, I'm just so excited to be there at that time. And I think the games I can only get to will be in Paris. I can't go to any of the other games, but we'll see. But I mean, just to be there for an event like this, um, I'm just so pumped. I'm so pumped that I've made it work that I could do that. So, do you remember what stadium they're playing at? Uh, the Parc des Princes. Oh, awesome. The main one. Yeah, yeah, the main one. That's yeah, awesome. yeah, the big one. So I'm so excited to see that stadium. And do you have high hopes that the Matildas will go deep and you'll still be in Paris when that wave hits off? Or are you back in Australia by finals time? Um... I'll be back in Australia by finals time. I'll be there the, I think like just after the group stages. Yep, so yeah. early knockout slash group. Yep. Good time mm -hmm. to be around. Mm, yeah. So there should be lots going on, and I've already sort of reached out to a lot of different people that'll be over there, and like going to go along to like the little Matildas meetups and stuff. So it should be a cool uh, time just to be out there and just meet awesome people that are around women's sport and women's football and. Yeah, I'm just hoping to make a lot of friends, really. Now, our next guest joins us in what, let's be honest, has been a tough week for him. Announced this week that Paddy McCartan will be on the long-term injured list, so won't play again this season. Paddy, firstly, thanks for coming in, mate, because obviously we're going to be asking questions to you that are not a great deal of fun to answer because you want to be out there playing footy. So, firstly, great to see you, mate. No, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. How are you going? How are you going? The fact that all you want to do is get out there and play footy, and obviously due to the concussion situation, you can't. So, firstly, how are you, mate? Um... Yeah, not great, to be honest. So my hot pie is a photo this week. It's a Michael Wilson photo, shock horror, because he is the pick of the AFL's 
photography crop. The photos of Paddy McCartan and Simon Lethleen on a bench at Moorabbin while the Saints were training. So Paddy McCartan, obviously, as most people will know by now, has missed a large chunk of footy because of concussion. Um, the photo's in black and white. It's really simple. It's two blokes on a bench. Um, Paddy's got his, got his head down, and they're clearly sharing, I would imagine, quite an intimate conversation. Um, this photo was kind of followed up um, by a couple of things. So St Kilda placed him on the long-term injury list. Um, and then he also was interviewed on Triple M with Mark Howard and I think it was the Saturday Rub. Yep. Um, so with a group of uh, football journalists, which kind of gave us a pretty rare and raw insight into the trials and tribulations of someone with the level of con- like concussion that's that severe. Talked a lot about not being able to go to the supermarket, not being able to deal with bright lights, not even really being able to go watch the Saints play. And then I thought that probably the, one of the more interesting things was they, for him right now, He's not even in a position where his immediate footballing future is a chief concern. It's just at a point where he just wants to get back to being able to live like a safe, happy, healthy human being who can actually go outside in daylight and do the things that he loves to do. Um, So this was all very raw. And I guess the reason this is a hot pie is because this photo is a great piece of photography and was able to spark a conversation that I think at times has lacked nuance in the AFL media. And someone has pointed out that he has been previously, he being Paddy McCartan, has previously been questioned because of his resilience and all of these other different things without people really having an understanding of what he is. And I guess he also got the opportunity to speak about the fact that he manages diabetes as well. Um, So for me, it was one of those moments that you kind of just thought, well, if this guy is a high draft pick and doesn't pan out, that is really the least of the things that we should be concerned about for him. Yeah, and it is just nice to see a a touch of humanity, especially in a space where fans, especially online fans, just use these as either you like use athletes as utilities for conversation starters. Like, oh my God, did you see X have a terrible game? What a joke. Or X has this problem. And I said a bit more, especially in like forums and in like private group chats where people will bring up, oh, I got this goss off my mate that says that his mate told him that player X has a gambling debt or an alcohol addiction or does drugs, whatever. And it's like, why do we care on that? And when you see an image like this, you go, hang on, no, it's not. Like, Paddy McCartan isn't this, like, character we watch in a drama series. He's a real person. And so, like, as much as, yes, when you do reach the level of, like, fame that these players have to an extent, yes, it comes with that you get treated differently as an entity, but you need to remember that they are real. It's like, you know, you can critique a character in a drama series because they're not real. Mm. And, the, and then the conversation is, to a point, harmless. But we're here, it can be actually quite harmful, especially when you add the context of, you know, yeah, concussion and mental health. But that's every player. Like, every player has emotions, so you, we should be wary of those things. And yeah. anything that highlights this is really good. And, and the same with the interview yeah. as well, especially on the rub, which is traditionally quite a lighthearted, jokey, blokey, you know, uh, change room, humour-type environment. Triple M, yeah. And to bring, it, to bring it into this and be real for a second or two is really impressive by the Triple M and their producers and all that kind of stuff. Well, so. I love Malc- Mark Howard for his ability to do that. Hmm. He very much led that interview. I mean, I love it because it is – you see this – and yes, it's a footballer, but I also see at the basic level an employee and his boss hmm. and the boss just being genuinely concerned about whatever the health issue is having a very sincere, quiet conversation. And I, it is a very intimate photo. I think the interesting thing that I took as well was we kind of talk, and we've spoken a little bit on this podcast about CBT and the links between concussion and mental health. And the thing that I think stood out for me with McCartan was that a lot of the anxiety and the, the sort of those issues that emerge comes because of his inability to actually do and live his normal life. Mm. So it's not so much that he's got a brain injury as just like, this is stopping me doing all of these things, which added up a lot with, there's a guy I met when I was in Darwin 
who played a lot of waffle for South Frio called Chris Luff. He's a big, tall, six foot five defender. And he played a couple of games for the Tiwi Bombers. And I remember we just had this conversation about him going through very similar issues. So he'd essentially stopped playing waffle, played a little bit of social footy, was happy to go up and play for the Bombers, but had had essentially this problem where he had mm. a severe knock to his head, couldn't get out of the house, couldn't do anything. You're talking about a supremely fit guy who you know wants to go to the gym, um, has all of these things that he was involved in, and his mental health just dovetailed. Mm. And it's much the same story. Um, and I thought the thing that was really interesting, and I spoke to him and was able to kind of get to know him a little bit, but the depth of that anxiety he was really open about. And I just think that and he doesn't have Paddy McCartan's profile. Mm. And so having someone in this position do it is just brilliant. And having any footballer at any level be open about the issues that they face when something like this happens and why is so valuable because it'll get us out of that, oh, no, he's got a concussion. Maybe we should let him come back on. Or, oh, it's just a head knock. He's a bit soft. And it mm. just completely makes that attitude look foolish. And I think that's what ultimately the game needs. Especially when we're already pretty across as a as a fandom now, the management of injuries and how important it is. Like especially when we saw so Joe Janaher is probably the prime injury case at the moment where everyone kind of goes as a fan reflectively and reflexively, like, oh my God, Essendon were such idiots to rush him back. And we we rarely say the same as a as a cohort about concussion or mental health. We're just gonna get them back in, get them back in. But when you actually think about it with with some nuance, you go, actually that's the same thing. Like if you rush someone back too soon, the dangers to them are severe and you get you get relapse or you get symptoms much like Joe Danaher does. He gets a re-tear, gets a re-flare up of OP. So, yeah, it's it's nice now that we're progressing to a stage where all injuries are treated the same and it's a, a human issue first before it is a, a player, character, fantasy football betting issue. So. Hey, troll. Hey, troll. Hey, troll. Hey, troll. Let's chat. Let's chat. 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 Let's chat. The 2019 WNBA season kicks off tonight. So you know what that means. Little man trolls will be trolling us on social media. So we challenge you, you, to at least be creative this summer. No, I'm not going to make you a sandwich. Do your mama not feed you? Enough of the kitchen jokes. They're stale and not funny. Want to know why nobody likes the WNBA? Because all y'all females tall. Nobody likes a female who can dunk on them. So we're going to go into the cold pies. Casey, <laughs> your pie. Hit me with your pie, your cold pie. Don't <clears> hit me with it because I don't want pie on my face. But well, I'm not going to throw a pie in your face. Thanks, I'm not that person. Um, yeah, no, I just saw something really weird. Um, for people who may know that I'm a bit of a Hoops fan and the WNBA season started on the weekend, which is very, very exciting. Um, the WNBA looks a bit different this year. They've had a bit of a revamp. So new logo, new colour scheme, um, new commissioner that was just announced before the season started. Um, Kathy Engelbert, who's the CEO of Deloitte, um, has come in to take over the WNBA. And I think with that just comes a lot of um, changes in marketing strategy. And something dropped on their uh, Twitter handle the day of the um, season launch, which was a few players uh, addressing uh, social media trolls. <clears throat> which we've talked about before in terms of the trolling that athletes are getting online and um, the subsequent fallout of that and then the media sort of analysis of it too. So I thought this was a good one to discuss based on some of our previous conversations. So the tweet so that came up was a video and it's some of their players that literally just started saying like, hey, trolls, our season's starting. If you are going to say mean things about us, like we don't want to hear them, um, and then they kind of started doing that mean tweet style um, video, which we've seen before, where they read out some of the comments that they've got in the past. Um, I found it really uncomfortable to watch. 
And it reminded me of something that the AFLW did simply um, at the start of the AFLW season this year, which um, wasn't actually the league. It wasn't the AFLW or the AFL. It was the broadcaster Channel 7 did something similar with the captains of each of the team where they sort of faced down the camera and they just said, if you don't like women's footy, like, don't watch us. We're here to stay. We're not going away. We just don't want your negative comments. Let us do our thing. And um, a colleague of mine, Kirby Fenwick, wrote for The Guardian about that, saying that that sort of social responsibility does not lie in the athletes' hands. They shouldn't be the ones out there addressing those kind of issues in that way. Um, it sort of puts them in a really vulnerable position, um, which I tend to agree. I don't think athletes should be addressing this kind of stuff. But then I also feel really split because I know, like last week, I pointed to um, a video that I suggested everyone watched where two journalists did a similar thing, where they had other people come in and read mean tweets that they'd received to their faces. And I thought that was really powerful. So now I'm just sort of wondering what the best sort of way is to address these social media trolls, because I don't think their answer is to ignore them. Um, I don't think it is to switch off and pretend they're not there. I do think there needs to be some acknowledgement and some sort of accountability for the people who do behave in apparent ways online to to women in sport, to athletes and you know, to everyone really. But yeah, this kind of like approach of, um, yeah, these athletes being front and centre and doing it in this way just made me feel like a bit ick on a day where I just wanted to really celebrate the start of a new season. I think the difference between the two videos that you're talking about is that in the one you recommended, the perpetrators are invited in to tell them face to face. So the powerful message there is that essentially don't do what online that you wouldn't do in person. Yeah. So it's like if you don't if you don't yeah. if you don't really believe in it, then don't don't do it. Like you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Whereas if you have these just straight to camera, all it does is that it just it just repeats their message, and then all you'll get in the comments below is just a repeat of the same messaging. Mm. Like, why are you in my feed? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. There's no accountability. Whereas if you show accountability or just like the forced repulsion of your own actions when you are forced to reread those messages face-to-face in real life, then I think that's very powerful. Yeah, I tend to agree. And it's also just a weird, as you said, it's a weird marketing ploy to say, mm. let's bring up all the negative stuff where you could just bring up all the positive stuff. Definitely. New new logo, new colour, where where this is the new version of the NBA, jump on board, it's going to be awesome. Not... yeah. Like, stuff the trolls. And especially on day one, too, mm. like, to bring up the negative energy from the start. And I can see what they're trying to do because, as I said, like, this type of level of trolling has gotten to breaking point. Like, something does need to be done. So I can understand the position that those marketers are in where they are trying to protect their athletes and they're trying to build, like, a different online space that is more... Um, like it's safer for everyone to participate in as fans, as athletes, as broadcasters. So I can see why they're trying to do it, but I just still feel like this to me just isn't the right way. I had a bit of a conversation with some people online about it and I guess the style of this video is the mean tweets that they're reading, they're trying to make fun of them. Like the mm. athletes are trying to bring a lot of humour into it. Like they're just ridiculous statements anyway. They're not bringing up the really like sexually violent, misogynist comments. They're just kind of these statements that don't really make sense. So... I think I said something like if the athletes are sort of really like have full consent of doing something like this and making fun of these statements with humour empowers them in a way, then then it makes me feel a little bit better that they're involved in something like this. But then I also just feel like oh, they shouldn't be doing this. Like this is just not worth their time. Like and it also just shows a lack of protection from the league. So the league could just come out and say, we're going to, like, on our official, all the official club social medias and our own social media channels as a league, we will just moderate. So anything that's inappropriate, we just delete. Mm. So you don't have to deal with it. Yep. And then, obviously, you have to monitor your own social accounts as an individual. 
That's fine because most most of the stuff comes through the clubs and then like not many people, fingers crossed, reach out directly. They do go through their via like via their yeah. vague exposure yeah. and then they if they get really impassioned about it, they'll go hunting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if the league just committed to all our clubs and the league as a whole will just moderate these channels, then problem solved. Mm. And then you don't have to then like but yeah, as you said, it's not on the players to be like, Don't don't hate us. It's like, well, that's not your yeah. As you said that's not their role. That's not their job. And mm-hmm. it's also not marketing. It's not you're, you're doing like a weird public service announcement or like a weird educational like proofing. Yeah. As part of your marketing ploy for why we should engage in the league. Yeah. Because as a like if I was a on the fence fan, it's like well now why, why am I watching this? Like what is good about your league? Why am I watching this and not the Stanley Cup Finals? Or why am I watching this and the Stanley Cup Finals? Mm. There's none of that. It's just like don't be a hater. Oh cool. Like I'll disengage then. I just won't engage at all. Yeah, you lose. It's not marketing. Is the is the weird part about it? So, and it's the same as how I felt with the AFLW one. And I mean, that one ended up getting um, brought down. Like AFL actually mm. asked Channel Seven to take that down for those reasons because it just didn't sit well and it wasn't their message. And yeah, it just makes it just feel weird. Just weird areas. Whereas I've seen a couple of good ones between uh, early promotions for the women's uh, cricket World Cup coming up in twenty twenty for the T twenties, and also the women's uh, soccer World Cup. Has been like throw like a girl, kick like a girl. We say mm. like we say let's do it. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of like yeah, it, that's that, that's a clever twist saying like actually no, it's a compliment. Yeah, GB had a big campaign called This Girl Can hmm. along the same lines, which hmm. is oh no, like this is yeah, this is a positive. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, we are going to go into a little pre-buy health test. We're going to ask Gordo to assess 10 rounds in how footy is travelling. So, I want to talk to you about the state of the game because obviously we have this conversation every single year. Now, are you having this conversation because you're being prompted to or is this a very organic happening within your body? Because no. I don't think like, we've had this conversation. Like the grand royal football media, the we, that we often critique and speak the, the about, we. Uh, hasn't had it yet, I don't think. They had a little bit early on about, like, there's not enough scoring. But that was it. They kind of mention it as, like, a, oh, scoring's down, and they move on because there's been a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of uh, clickbaity type things, people getting on the piss when they're not meant to, people hitting blokes off the ball, that kind of stuff, all those kind of really easy fast food, easy-to-write articles, easy-to-film easy to, easy to film, uh, TV bits. We haven't had to dig into the to the dark depths of the quagmire that is, yeah. oh, footy stuffed, oh, man, they try to fix it and then they fail. So, scoring, aesthetics. Yes, it's down. Are you concerned about low scoring? Not at all. I don't like I personally don't care what the game score is. I care about the quality, and that probably has been the bugbear of some people where, you know, your Paul Ruse of the world, like, actually the Melbourne Old Boys that, that sit on the couch every Monday, which really should just be called the Melbourne Old Boys, because if you look into their histories, that's exactly what they are, uh, have, <laughs> have lamented the fact that skills are down. Skills are bloody down, fellas. That's atrocious. They're not kicking for goal very well. They're not kicking the ball properly. They need to be full-time athletes. I don't know how kicking the ball 24-7 and tearing quad makes you a better athlete, but let's leave science out of it. Um, but then you go to Bucks and he goes, like, well, pressure's up. So pressure is up, but I don't think the game is become uglier. So I think 666 has done the thing that they wanted it to do, but in a roundabout way. So so scoring's an obvious metric, but it's not a proof of a better product. So I want to be really clear that you don't think the root cause of low scoring is 666. 
no, I do think the red quarter low scoring is 6-6-6. I don't think that's a problem on the state of the game. So you look at, so you can look at two things that probably stoppages and have stayed the same, but clearances have gone up. So repeat stoppages have decreased. So the ball is in time more often. And to use and to borrow, especially uh, in the NRL, they have now they have a weekly debrief from the head of competition. So Graham Ansley comes out and he just runs down like the key facts and indicators and it's like, oh, did you know? Year-on-year uh, year comparison, the ball has been in play for 5% longer and therefore the actual game time is 3% less. We've got more free-flowing footy, how great is this? Reports are down or reports are up or whatever. So he does that week on week. We don't get them in the AFL. That would be good. So clearances are up because there are less repeat stoppages, which is great, which means the ball is actually moving more often. It's moving more often between the 50s and not getting turned into goals. Why? Well, teams are better defending, which I think is a great thing because it actually creates a contest. Um, and also by having 666, you take away the ability to outnumber. So the easiest way to score in the last kind of decade has been overload your defense and then use the re- and use a rebound run to slingshot because you have numbers where you don't have yeah. numbers in there. So line. in your opinion, 666 have made it a lot, a lot harder to slingshot. Yeah. yeah. So the old ways of scoring have been taken away. And it's much easier to defend than it is to score. So the coaches go, I've lost all my weapons. The only weapon I have left now is the ability to limit their scoring, the opposition's scoring. So that's what they're doing. You're seeing more defensive first football. Is it more exciting? Sure, because we have closer games. So if you look at the winning margins, 0 to 5 has increased by 5%, and in the 12 23 has increased by 11%. So we're getting closer games and less blowouts, and that's reflected at the other end. So our 50 plus margins are down by 8%. So we're getting less thrashings unless they're really big, and that's mostly just due to two clubs. Shout out, so you know who you are. Uh, and the rest of it is, yeah, we're seeing closer games and teams in the games for longer and more of these amazing finishes like um, Walter's kick after the siren. Rampy. Rampy. Rampy times two. Yeah, Rampy times two, all this kind of stuff. So, so that's against the preseason prediction was that the blowouts would increase because of 666. Yeah, they thought scoring would be uncontrollable and, oh, my God, we're going to go back to the footy of the 80s. And, well, no, unless you take all the coaches away, we won't go back to the footy of the 80s ever, which I think is a good thing. Cool. So we're going to move on from the actual state to the narratives around this year. Mm -hmm. So for whatever we'd say with scoring, Mm -hmm. does this season throw up more narrative interest for the key combatants than previous seasons, do you think? I think it's the same narratives. Or is there no real difference and it's just like we'll create a narrative every year there's no narrative. matter what is in front of us? Well, every year there has to be a narrative because a, a, you know, a series of events occur over a 24-week period and if you talk about it, that becomes a narrative. <laughs> it just has to happen <laughs> organically. But is there, are they GCR and more exciting? I think, I think so because of what the masses and, the, again, another Royal Wee situation is interested in. So we're going to have probably, my prediction, six coaches move on from their clubs, which is always good of like who's on the go and especially when you have the early domino effect of a coach going mid-season, that creates more narratives and kind of conversations and is this the week that Brendan Bolton gets sacked, that kind of stuff. And so you have that for six clubs really and then you have... So who are the six? Essendon? Well, the obvious ones that I think will get done at the end of the year will be uh, St Kilda. Really? Carlton Still. and yeah. Isn't like, and it's not because they're gone poorly. It's Richo's. It's like what Richo's eighth year in the eighth year as St Kilda head coach. They're going to finish in the bottom four again. Are they? Probably. Watch this space. So Richo, yeah. and, then, and then and Sydney, because I think Longmire is going to go very much down the Brad Scott route of 
I've had my time. I've, we've won our flags. We need to read it again. And I don't want to do that. And I don't think you want me to do that. You want something fresh. Let's just freshen up. But I think, I think they've had that conversation and he has the runs on the board that Brad Scott didn't to be allowed to coach the rest of the season yeah. as opposed to being like Sonara. Dogs? I, I just think the media doesn't like the dogs. And when I say the media, I think definitely one journalist in particular <laughs> doesn't like the dogs. Yeah. And he's a very powerful one. So mm. that, what, what, the dogs aren't playing bad footy. They play good looking footy when they're at their best. They the lose. gap between their best and their worst is enormous. But that's on the coach. The coach, oh, the head coach, the head coach kind of dictates game style for me and then player, like players coming in and out. The rest of it's line coaches and the players. So the players, they have players that don't, don't it's not that they don't show up, they show up and then they, they quit. The dogs quit a lot of games that they lose. So that's on the players, that's on the coach. Mm. You can't say don't be quitters like every week and then expect them not to, not to quit. Like, so Frio? Nah, Freya's fine. Again, like Ross, those coaches. I mean, to be fair, they're going. They're looking eight chance. Yeah. So Freo and Brisbane are in that situation where I think their narrative is: Are they legit? Which is a well, I think Fags is in a more is in a stronger position than Ross by a long way. Well, both clubs are basically the same on the ledger or the ladder, which everyone will look at. Ugh. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and both coaches are very senior coaches with heaps of experience and heaps of success to varying degrees mm. that they can do what they want. I think Wush is the really interesting watch. So then the big ones, the really meaty ones for the lovers of coach killing out there, if you like, you know, killing time and killing Eve and all that kind of stuff, is Wusher. He could be in the he'll be in the gun, the media gun every week from now on, as as they continue to lose now they have all the injuries. And Adelaide, because they are they are the love child of the Adelaide media. And there's nothing more than at the Kang Corns types of the worlds over at SENSA love to do than stick the boot into Adelaide. You're not and wrong. he will he won't be there in the year, guaranteed. Don Pike will not coach Adelaide next year. Hinkley? I think Hinkley gets the benefit of being the little brother in that town. So it's like, oh, Port. Having seen the Adelaide narrative, I agree with that. And I do think the schisms that emerged at the Crows, gee, schisms is a great word. Thanks, Lemony <laughs> Snicket. Um, the schisms that emerged at the Crows after 17, I just don't, I don't see evidence that they've healed. No, not at all. And I just don't think that they're going to be able to recover that vein of form without significant regime change. And personnel change. And personnel change. Yeah, the players, they did some players, and they made some poor decisions, and everything's always easy to take, point out in hindsight. Well, but they went searching for the 2% they needed to the point that they organised a ridiculous camp that just didn't need to happen and didn't reflect where they were actually at. They lost a grand final and played a bad game of footy. Hmm. Whether they did that because of cultural issues is another... Longer tangential conversation that we're probably not going to go into. In terms of the top of the ladder, mm-hmm. I, I do think the top five all have intriguing stories. Do you not agree? Yeah. I think the stories that you've pointed out aren't going to be reflected by the rest of the football population, but let's talk about them anyway. So Buckley's endless pursuit of glory for Collingwood. That's the obvious. That's Everyone agrees with that. And everyone kind of everyone has a little part of their heart that's dedicated to Buckley and winning a flag, even Casey, the absolutist over here in the corner of the podcast. That's, that's, it's a lot anything. more than a little bit of my heart, I tell you. <laughs> um, West Coast backing up, but then also trying to win it for those who missed out, which doesn't. that's not just me saying it's an Andrew Gaff redemption. It's Nick Nat as well for mm-hmm. West Coast. Problem yeah. is that Nick Nat might not get back. Mm. Correct. Um, Richmond, it's the horror run with injury. Yeah, Can they ride that way? That's always the Richmond thing, though. It, it was the Richmond thing in 2017. Was like it? the underdogs that could. Well, like, it was the underdog, but it wasn't underdog because of injury. Yeah, like they've been very lucky with injuries, but like, Richmond always playing to the underdog card of, like, we're not that good, but actually they're a massive club with heaps of resources. And, and hundreds yeah. of thousands of yeah. members. Yeah. 
the Ablett Swan song for Geelong. He's going to go next year as well, so that doesn't exist. But if they win it, does he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's going pretty well. So that what? So what's Geelong's? Uh, they're just due. The Geelong is actually Chris. They're Scott. due. <laughs> Piss off. How many how many grand finals have they won in the last ten years? But they're not due. They have an eighty percent win record over the last decade, and they've only won one flag. They're due. No, well, relative to how they play, but when you've waited thirty-seven years, they are not due. No, but as in, like Richmond doesn't didn't deserve like, to win look, a flag in those thirty-seven years. Like West Coast were this. not due last year, <laughs> um, Und- yes, by <laughs> any estimation. You came into the no. comp, won two flags on the trot, <laughs> won another one ten years later. You can wait for thirty years. As I far know, as but I'm that's concerned. not. But when you play good footy, then you're due. As in, like Geelong, Geelong would be disappointed. So the narrative here is actually Chris Scott's legacy more than anyone else, and it's it's hard to get that across in the media because he's the an expert at making it not about him. He, he does more media commitments than any other coach other than Buckley, and he is an expert at pretending it's not about him when it's actually about Chris Scott's yeah. legacy. Like, he, 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 everyone knows he got gifted the first premiership because it wasn't really his team. He just picked it up and they ran yep. with it. And then they bottomed and then out and he rebuilt well, it. didn't, they didn't, they didn't bottom out, out, but he rebuilt it. He has a 77% win record in his coaching team. He is the most, he is the most winningest coach by percentage for a person that's coached that period of time. So this, is some, is this, so this is cementing his legacy. Cementing his legacy as Which is one of one. the greatest coaches of all time. Yeah, if like they win this year. I like it. If they don't, he is one of the biggest disappointments to never win a flag for a club that should have. That, that, that's, what, that's what the flip-flop will be <laughs> based on one day, which also changed Buckley's narrative. Buckley's last year could have been the redemption story and, oh, my God, he finally gets it. And instead it was... Oh, he's kind of cute because he always loses grand finals, and he and he's a nice guy. GWS, do they actually have a story? Well, they're the they're the we finally did it. Like that's the AFL's narrative. And well, that's my thing. I've written it's this is finally it. Yeah, we finally got there. Yeah, focus groups win. Focus. Well, <laughs> yeah, AFL driven. Hmm. I still think Marketing about that, plays. and I do think there's a little bit of love in the world when I realise that they didn't do it earlier. Yeah. Because the longer you delay, the more important, the more like it's actually going to feel like a thing. Yeah. Because for sure. I just think the day that they won it would have been such a hollow day for everyone else. Will it not be a hollow day if they win it this year, though? Because you'll get, so let's say, best case scenario for them is they finish top two. So they get two home finals. They win both of those in a row, or three home finals, probably the best case scenario for the AFL as a proof of concept. Are they going to get people to their, to their ground? When they play doggies in the prelim at home, it was 88% Doggies fans? It was gross. Pretty close. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Because Grand went... Final isn't an issue because it's mostly corporates anyway, so you can squeeze in you know, your 10% of GWS fans. Mm. Who cares? Mm. Yeah. But it is those other games where the atmosphere is intense, unless you just rely on everyone else wanting to beat GWS, and they become like the self-fulfilled villain heel yeah. of the AFL. But they're just not like a villain side, though. Like A lot of their players are just so likeable. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. So... Yeah, I don't know. But then I'd think this year's not the year. I'd be happy for them to win it next year. Uh, but then no, I want a three-peat, so mm, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe after <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Case. Um, good, good content by me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I guess it probably depends who they play and who they beat Yeah. in the granny. There are teams that I'd like to see them beat. Okay, not involving your own teams. It would be hard for you to end this little segment. What would be the best-case grand final? Not involving your own team. What? Because <laughs> they're obvious. Um, mm. Oh. Can we involve each other's teams? Yeah, it's kind of your own team. Okay. Hmm. Well, I know, well, I know what Kay should say. 
Yeah. <laughs> Casey, Casey, what should you Read say? my mind. Yeah. Uh, Richmond Geelong. No. <laughs> no. Why? Well, you're thinking Geelong because your mum, but the best grand final should should be Richmond Collingwood. I can't I choose to... that because I can't choose yeah. Richmond. Uh, I would choose. I would go. I am Collingwood choosing Geelong. Geelong for my mum. Yeah, I would go Collingwood Geelong. Yeah. Uh, but if I take the Ge- Richmond hat off, I do think Geelong Collingwood. Yeah. But I do think if it took the Richmond hat off, I just think Richmond Collingwood Grand Final, it was bad enough when it was a prelim. Like, could you imagine? Yours, Gordo? The biggest narrative, I think, would be Geelong Collingwood, the two coaches and legacy. And the one I want to see, because of I think it would be just a really good game, is Collingwood GWS. Mm. They are really nice. Styles, Styles makes fights. Contest. Well, I like Collingwood and the Eagles because of the contrast in styles a little bit. No, but I think we already saw how it's going to play out. I don't see that changing unless West Coast changes their game style. Move on to the people's question, people, aren't we? The sights and sounds of 40,000 years of Indigenous culture will be symbolised at football grounds across the country before vast audiences, and then what? That was what the ABC's Richard Hines wrote in his column at the weekend as Indigenous Round celebrations took hold of both the AFL and the NRL. So our people's question this week, as uplifting as it is to see Sydney Stack doing a pregame dance... Is this round more sentiment than substance? So the opening question for both of you really is about how you viewed this in the lead up and then how you experienced it on the weekend. So I'll start with you, Case. Um, I guess my lead up was very different this year. Um, I actually just started a new research role at Swinburne University and my first research project is to work with um, the AFL, New New South Wales and ACT Indigenous programs up in Sydney. So I was up in Sydney all last week leading up um, into Indigenous Round and also attended NRL match on the Thursday night for their Indigenous Round as well. So I sort of got, I guess, a bit of the best of both worlds in the lead up to Indigenous Round for both the codes where I got to participate in attending both um, sort of yeah, both the codes in the one week, but then also had a lot of contact with um, Aboriginal people during the week throughout my work and got to see their perspective about the game and, and hear their thoughts on it and um, sort of discuss some of those things, which was really, really great because it helped me see, I guess, the other side of it and just listening to some of my colleagues up there talk about um, the Indigenous jumpers and the designs and um, just seeing their stories reflected in news media throughout the week. Um, so it just gave me a perspective of this really does mean a lot. Like for me, I like to think I'm pretty progressive and aware of these sort of narratives and I like to open myself up to being educated about um, lots of different things that I'm unaware of. So when I see these things, I think this is great. I like to hear the stories and I like to educate myself and I think it's really important and I do actually enjoy it a lot. But seeing... Aboriginal people engage with this stuff too and then them then telling me just a little bit more about what they think about it, it really opened up my eyes to just how important symbolism actually is. Like sometimes we might think it's a bit tokenistic or forced or not quite like natural, but to some people that's just so huge. Um, so seeing that really opened my eyes a lot and I think I really 
enjoyed the lead up to this year's Indigenous Round just a lot more than I had in the past, just being able to experience it through so many different lenses. I think the clubs have been better this year than other years at letting their players be more out there and be more be more spoken yeah, out about it. That mm. was very, very uh, obvious to me simply in how available Richmond made someone like Daniel Rioli mm. during the week. Or even a Sydney Stack, so letting Sydney Stack dance. Yeah. Because as, as Dim has said himself, like previous years he wouldn't allowed that. It's it's show off in his like in his prior opinions, it's it's not part of the team ethic. It's it's not about you, it's about the team. And then everyone's kind of realised that no, actually as you said, like it, it is about the indigenous players mm. and what it means to be and have their time. Because again, as much as like you can have a cynic's view and be like, we should be doing this every week, mm-hmm. but we're not currently. So let's at least celebrate a good intentioned like weekend. Yeah. Let's let's celebrate what we are doing well and let's celebrate something that should be celebrated and then all the other bits around it that isn't understandable by a long way, we can address but like let's engage everyone first and then have those conversations. Is as like a, as a launching pad. So I probably think the problem it often gets is that a lot of these things in sports, people go, Well, what's the point? Like it's it's just a, it's just a yeah, it's just a symbol, it's just mm-hmm. a launching pad. It's like, well no, that's the point. We were using sport as the place where you can kind of wedge in something that's a little bit political and a little bit socioeconomic and a little bit like location-based and like kind of like slip it in accidentally and be like, oh, now think about these things. Mm-hmm. And then when I start thinking about these things, you're more likely to engage in that as an outsider. Yeah. So I think that's where it's powerful. And then it's on us. It's not on the it's not on a sports code to do it. It's on us as a, as a society to go, now let's have those conversations next week, the week after, months after, years after. And that's when you see things like like the long walk and that kind of thing mm. plays into it now. It's, you're using sport as the hook and then you're using these other organisations, these other actions, these other people as the continuations of the important conversations and the important actions that need to happen eventually. And I've wondered in previous years, and this changed a little bit for me this year because we had we have that focal figure and that figure being Michael Long was supremely, I think, important this year. Um and the previous year it was Polly Farmer, hmm. who is it? And I, I think having it centered around a person is significant. And I think that's a really interesting thing because it made people reflect on what those players had done and progress that had been made or not made. So Michael Long walked to Canberra in 2004. We're 15 years past that. But the background to that was he essentially decided he was going to walk and meet John Howard because he'd been to Darwin and come home from Darwin and been he'd been up in Darwin for a funeral again um, and then got home and decided that something had to be done. And then for him to re-pledge during the week when he was so central that 15 years on he wants to do the same thing again, I think was a way of speaking to a very, very large audience. And Michael Long is such a revered figure that one of the AAP slash, I think it was a Guardian article, ended on the note of people just going, how good is Michael Long? And I think for a lot of people it led to a reflection on the scope of some of the disadvantage. And I felt like this year, maybe more so than other years, that conversation was had more often. Hmm. So I think the two statistics that really stood out for me is since 2008, in 2008, the Indigenous suicide rate was 17.8 deaths per 100,000 people. In 2017, it was 25.5 deaths per 100,000 people. So that's increased significantly. Um, And in 14 slash 15, the Australian Institute of Criminology estimated that the number of Indigenous deaths in prison prison custody was at a 35-year high, which I only put those statistics there to highlight the fact that the redoing of Michael Long's walk is really, really, really necessary. Mm. I don't necessarily think, and we had this conversation a little bit off air, that the AFL is capable of solving those issues. And I guess my next question for you guys is how much 
the symbolism or the creation of that conversation can actually be something that leads to substantive change. Because in the election campaign, Indigenous issues really weren't a focal point. I would almost argue they got more airtime out of this round than Mm. they did out of entire federal election campaign. And I'd argue, so it goes back to how marketing works a little bit and why, so that the approach where you, you go, here's the issue, we want to try and solve it with marketing, to use what we used before, is that you take online trolling and you address it directly in your advertising and say, stuff the trolls. And all that happens really is that you have everyone that you're on board with stay on board, have people who are on the fence stay on the fence or disengage, and you have everyone who is a troll continue being a troll. Whereas if you do this and it celebrate the, the culture, celebrate the, the event, celebrate all the good things about what we're seeing, then you get engagement. And then from there, you can force, yeah, you can action change or you can action behaviours. But it's, it's a long process. If you try and force and go, we have this problem we want to try and solve and you use marketing to try and solve it, it won't work. So the AFL will lose its power. The AFL will lose its reach. The AFL, by being a sport, has the ability to reach millions of people. And if they execute it well, like they did this year, in my opinion, then you get more reach and more engagement. And then you can try and use that as a catalyst for conversation and change. Mm. But if you try and force it directly and skip all the other steps, then you don't get anything. Yeah, and I would encourage, I guess, observing this round, have conversations about things like the Uluru Statement Hmm. and about the importance of um, self-determined solutions to Indigenous suicide, the lack of a national Indigenous suicide strategy and why all of those things are important. And I guess if, and even, and this week we've had for the first time in Australian history, an Indigenous minister for Indigenous Australians in Ken Wyatt. So I think having conversations about why those things matter and I think particularly Uluru um, is really, really important. And if this is something that can encourage people who are aware of those things to talk to people about it, oh, hey, we're at the footy, oh, this is, we've got some, and that encourages the conversation. I don't see how that is negative in any way. Mm. Mm. And the other thing it also offers is is what sport offers anyway. Like sport offers positive role models in in a well-exposed place. And that's what you get when, when, because not only is it like, if you're an Indigenous person, you can look and be like, I too can be an Indigenous athlete. The other thing is I too can be proud of my heritage and proud of my current culture. Well, and you, be can, actively, you can be what you can see. And, and be active in, in engaging with it and mm. proud and tell other people about it, whereas that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Mm. I think the other really cool thing about this kind of stuff too, which makes these kind of stories really palatable for people, is looking at it from a, a young person's and a children's perspective because I think something that is really cool that clubs and the AFL does around this round, which I think they did do particularly well this year, is a lot of the content around the Indigenous designs for the Guernseys, the football and the Brutes, and I think we'll talk a bit more about that in a about set. About yeah. um, But I would say, going off the back of what you just said, JB, about encouraging those conversations, I would encourage people who have children or no children or younger people to use that as an entry level to have conversations with your kids in the next generation. Like, show them the videos of your football club's Indigenous Guernseys being designed and what those designs means because I think that's a really great... I mean, I don't want to use the term entry level, but I guess it kind of is, but way to have a conversation about a culture and a history through storytelling, which we know is so prevalent for the Aboriginal culture, to share those stories with people who might not be aware of what that type of symbolism means and how important it is. And when you can put it there on a, on a football Guernsey and bring it back to a football narrative, which is easier for someone who's outside of this stuff to understand, I think that's a great way to start those conversations too and start asking more and more questions. I actually think, incidentally, the flow is the opposite. 
So instead of parents showing their children videos, I think it's actually more likely that children will show their parents videos. Well, this and is true I think true that also too. reflects yeah. how, how like, it's almost, I suppose, ironic that in the Indigenous culture, elders were really well respected and they pass on stories mm. passed down to generations. Yep. I think in terms of a progressive movement in, in politics, it's actually the opposite. The younger people take action and seek out stories that they're not used to or in their normal circles and pass it on to their elders because the elders are the ones that kind of have the more conservative views. Yeah, us that's a good point. Or being, you know, white middle-class Australians. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think by by engaging in an entry-level thing, it means that mm. kids can engage and be like, oh, that jersey looks cool. Hey, Dad, did you see how cool Hawthorne's jersey was? Can I have one? Why do you like that son or daughter? Oh, because I think it looks cool. Did you also know that my favourite player, Sean Bergon, had an, an, um, an involvement in making it? And then that conversation starts that way. Yeah, but it goes. Yeah, it goes yeah. up. I think it also gives you a deeper appreciation of the complexity of indigenous culture. Mm. So, for example, you would understand from this round very clearly that Buddy Franklin is a Nunga, um, Daniel Rioli is a Tiwi. All mm. the different jumper designs come from different places that mm. are done in different styles of art. And so, even that gives people a much greater insight into the fact that. No, it wasn't just one great homogenous indigenous body. There are different indigenous nations that our footballers are coming from, which is reflected in the AFL's AFLPA's Indigenous map, hmm. which is one of the great, because everyone kind of, the old adage would be, oh, didgeridoos are indigenous and dot painting is indigenous. They're only indigenous or they're only relevant to certain nations. Mm-hmm. They're only they're, in, so, they're indigenous yeah. to each nation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but some nations didn't play didgeridoos. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so, and that is essentially, it just gives you a much greater understanding of the intricacies of indigenous culture, mm. which you otherwise wouldn't get. The Guernseys are one of. And they just consistently are getting better. Mm. Yeah, they're always beautiful. But like, I think you're right. Like People are going to look at those like that as an art form more so than they're going to go access their local Aboriginal art gallery to have a look and learn. So I think this is a really great way to bring people into that history that doesn't put a lot of pressure on people to go out there and find a lot of information, which I do think we should be putting on people, but I'm a realist. Like I know not everyone is going to go do that. But I think sport, like you said, Gordo, is a great entry point for those conversations. So I'm just, I was just really impressed by how the AFL and the clubs ran this round. I thought it was really, really impressive. Mm. So talking of a health check, do we have a health check on the Indigenous round, considering that we have the Adam Goods documentary coming out in the next couple of weeks and the commissioners and the administrators' response to that documentary was a bit of shame essentially on how they acted as a whole. Have we have we improved as a football community? Have we improved as the AFL improved in the execution of this round? What it means, because I suppose like from the in terms of events, we've had Adam Goods doing a dance and getting smashed in the media to everyone dancing. Well, Sydney Stack, Sydney Stack dancing pre game, and people were going, "Oh my god, give me the gif!" Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that, it's a very big contrast. And mm. you mentioned before, that, and we'll mention the NRL, that GI or Greg Inglis has been doing the Goanna mm. for years without any backlash. And there was mm. backlash for Adam Goods doing an Indigenous dance. So I don't know. Why do you think that? Uh, do you think that's changed because of Goods? Oh, I think oh, I think it's just changed because of time, essentially. All mm. these things, like you have to have a flashpoint and then from that flashpoint are the ripples and then you get to where we are. But like really it's from Nikki Wimmer. Like the difference between Nicky yeah, Winmar yeah, and Michael Longstars Long to so getting on. to Adam Goods yeah. to getting to now. It's all part of that progression and a lot of terrible things happened between then and now. And I'm, like, unfortunately probably a lot of terrible things will happen between now and if this res- ever gets resolved and Continue hopefully it will. Yeah. 
Mm. And so the NRL celebrated the same round. And one of the best initiatives that I kind of read about from the weekend was from a Gamilaroi man called Mark Watson, who is the father of Newcastle Knights 5'8", Connor Watson. They basically set up, um, they essentially, I'll go back a step, had a cousin in the family who died by suicide. And as a result, they set up an organisation called Cultural Choice, which is established essentially to build awareness and to do research around Indigenous youth suicide, which is clearly a huge issue. We've had 62 Indigenous Australians die by suicide already in 2018, and we're not even at the halfway point of the year. So essentially during the weekend, they raised money for this organisation by painting the boots of all the Newcastle Knights players and then raffling, raffling them off. So that money went to an Indigenous-led organisation. Um, this story was told really beautifully by a colleague of mine or has been a colleague in the past, Lorena Alam, has also been a wonderful editor um, and I think is a Gamilla Roy woman herself. So um, my question for you guys really is, do the NRL showcase Indigenous culture better all year round? Is there a comparison to be had in how the codes deal with this round? Or is it not really something that we should be looking at comparing and we should be just taking them each for their own, for what they have? No, I, I like the comparison. I think it doesn't, get, it doesn't happen very often because I think that as much as I'm a footy ag- agnostic, I'm also a sports agnostic, but I, don't think, love NRL. but I don't think that follows across to the rest of it. So I don't think there's actually that many people that watch AFL like actively and watch NRL actively. Mm. But if you go to, I went to the Anzac Day game for both codes in Melbourne and part of, like pretty much part of every showcase game the NRL does, they do a very like in-depth welcome to country that usually involves uh, not only the regular welcome to country that we see now in most events in Melbourne, but also like dances and performances and cultural acts from, yeah, from like the local tribes. And so they're just more committed to having that exposed at any possible time than the AFL, which really only happens in Indigenous round. Mm. I think the Welcome to Country is a really good example of that because the AFLs, and I only noticed this because I got to a couple of games like 45 minutes early, is a is a big screen pre-record that's mm. played 40 or 50 minutes before every game, um, which seemed, when I think about other events that I go to and even things like court cases, um, speaking arrangements, Having a speaker deliver a welcome to country live is now a fairly normal practice at most events, but not at, at footy. It's still a pre-recorded thing, and I think and that's is a it, really and interesting is it a? Example. Okay, I don't think I've actually been there early enough or been outside when it's on. Is it a welcome to country or is it an acknowledgement of country? Well, it would have to be an acknowledgement of country if it's just on the TV because <clears throat> you need an elder to do the welcome to country. Yeah, yeah. it's recorded because that's the really powerful thing about the NRL is they actually do a proper welcome to country. Yeah. So they engage with an elder. Mm. It literally welcomes you, and it, it gives you just that little little flashpoint of teaching about how that actually works. Mm. Like we're on their land; they're welcoming us. Now we have permission. Uh, that's something really fitting and educational about that, as opposed to having it as a pre-record, which kind of feels just like another stadium announcement. Yeah, and I and there's so many of those things now that it does lose its effect. And I do think it's a really important thing because it means that how you fundamentally view the land is as of you view it not. Yeah, you view it as Aboriginal land. Hmm. I'm being welcomed to Aboriginal land. And even beyond that, if you go to a game at Metricon, you're welcome to a different country to being welcomed in Melbourne, yeah. where we're on Wurundjeri country. So hmm. that's going to change. And if you go to Geelong, it's going to be different. If you go to Sydney, it's going to be Wurundjeri country. And so it's all very, very different to just a standard welcome to country. And that's a brilliant thing because then people start to have an awareness of, oh, I went to the footy here and this is what I was and it was a different country that I was welcome to. And I just think that is really valuable in terms of how people view Australia as a whole. 
Um, and having read Stan Grant's book, Australia Day, really recently, I just think those things are invaluable mm. in terms of moving forward as, a, as an entire people. Definitely. I think like um, I did this thing, I've done it a couple of years now when I go to the States for a conference um, where they don't do um, anything like that. They don't do a welcome to country or acknowledgement of country um, when they are also sort of on stolen land, which I find really interesting. And I started talking to people at those conferences and sort of asked them why not or why. And um, it's just not a thing that they, and they, I think they've, I mean, not that we're, great at engaging with our Aboriginal history here, but I don't think um, how they deal with their Native American history is kind of acknowledged at all over there, which I find really interesting. But I started doing, um, when I go to this conference now, I actually look up the local tribes of the Native American people and I do um, an acknowledgement of country when I speak at these conferences and I kind of explain that in the context of what we do back home because I think it's really important and I think it's just for me over there it's just like an acknowledgement of my privilege as well and it's interesting seeing how that kind of divides a room um, that makes some people they're really really uncomfortable um, which I find fascinating and then it makes some people like want to ask me more about what we do in Australia with that kind of thing because they see it as really important and they really admire that we do that and it opens up some really great conversations but like you can see how it does really alienate people when they don't want to engage with like the history of, mm. of yeah native people. Less so now but I do know people of older generations to my own in the grandparent sort of age bracket that were very uncomfortable with mm. welcome to countries even here. But yeah. it is interesting how it's viewed differently from nation to nation because in New Zealand it's such a normalised thing. But mm. the the advantage from like a logistical point of view that New Zealand has is that it's one Indigenous culture with some like subsects and dialects but it's not, you know, 100 plus nations. So you can have it, you can have the Maori verse of the national anthem and everyone sing it and everyone learn it. Whereas... Like we'd have to do a post hoc federation, and then agree on a yeah. secondary language, yeah. and then like to do what New Zealand does, it it doesn't seem feasible. No, uh, yeah, and the language all, all right. The thing that amazed me the most about it's a slight tangent, but when I'm Paddy Heenan of the Tiwi Bombers speaks four languages, hmm. so he speaks English, Maung, which is his mum's language, Tiwi, and then there's an I think it's Garwin Garwinkle. I can't I've pronounced that terribly, but he speaks four languages, hmm. and I was. Blown Which away. we find blown away, but like if you lived in Europe, you would, there's a high yeah, chance that yeah. you also speak four but that, languages. And that's mm-hmm. funny, it's even just how Australia is viewed. Europe, it's so normal because there are so many countries so close together, and here yeah. it's not actually that different. Yeah, mm. correct. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, and that blew me away and probably shouldn't have to the same extent. Because yeah. one of the things that you learn when you talk about Michael Long is his parents were taken to the Tiwi Islands as stolen generation. So he was essentially adopted Tiwi, but also had a nation very close to Alice Springs that he was a part of. Mm. And so. That is another complicated part of Indigenous heritage. So there's mm. a lot of opportunities for learning, and I think definitely yeah, the round is a. It's always my favourite round of the football year, and I think even Richmond said that now. It's the game that they most look forward to, mm. and the probably the best thing about watching Richmond at the moment is that, much like the Baby Bombers in '93, we now have a crop of four Indigenous players playing with one who we've just taken in the mid-season draft, and that in itself is super duper fun to mm. watch. were things that I can't even say. I feel uncomfortable, so I consider that in some way sexual assault. We're not talking about the trolls right now. We're just talking about a whole bigger picture. This is society now. 
We have a book club this week. It is about Taylor Harris, and it is about the Stella magazine feature that was written about Taylor. Uh, the photography was by Cameron Grayson. The interview was by Jessica Halloran. And just to recap, Stella Mag features in the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun on the weekend. So this piece really followed up on the incident the famous photo, Michael Wilson photo, of the kick earlier in the year. So I wanted to start by asking you guys about the photography. So the cover photo of this story is a mock-up of Michael Wilson's photo of Taylor Harris that obviously went viral and was trolled quite largely on social media. So she's got a blue blazer, red pants, and her leg in that very familiar position. So when you saw that photo, what did you immediately make of the cover of this? I mean, I love it. I love this cover. I think she looks amazing. I um, I think she looks really powerful and I think she looks really soft, which I think are two really complicated things to pull off in one look. And I think she's brought a lot of her personality to that pose as well. Like I think like she's got a hand sort of risen there. Um, to me, it's kind of a bit like she's being a bit quirky. Um, I just see a lot of her personality in this and I think – and we'll talk about the other photos a bit later, but I think that's just a really great way to bring you into this story because I think from the Michael Wilson photo and then a lot of the imagery that we've seen of Taylor since that social media blow up has been her as, um, you know, and rightly so, a very fierce athlete. Um, but I think a lot of her agency was taken away from those photos because we talked about her in such a way that we weren't talking about her as a person. And I see her as a person in these photos, like, and I think that's why I really like them because I feel like I'm going to start to know her a little bit more from this. And it's true to her style. So if you follow her on on Instagram, especially, um, she always does a lot of work with with Nike as an ambassador, and she gets a lot of access to all their cool garb, which I'm really interested in and fond of. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so this this kind of is is consistent, and so it is nice to see. You know that she's a very colourful dresser. You know that she's very. Yeah, quirky and comical in the way that she yeah interacts with her fans on on social media, and to have that reflected in her piece, and it kind of makes you feel like even if they didn't, they asked Taylor like, how do you want to be portrayed? Which a lot of the time you don't get. Mm. And it's like it was interesting. Um, uh, Narrowly Meadows did a similar uh, spread, fashion spread for one of these lift out uh, magazines in a Sunday paper recently, and she commented on how like different it is because obviously she gets makeup and wardrobe done all the time. But obviously you have a little bit more agency and autonomy when you're doing a TV presenter you're like, well, I need to feel comfortable, I need to do this, I need to do that. Whereas the pressure on fashion mags or you know lifestyle mags, which are borderline fashion mags now, is that obviously they get either a paid or, a, or an ad hoc or a collab done. And so you kind of get, okay, we'll get, we'll get Taylor in and you'll be dressed in X, Y, Z. And you don't really get that much play with it unless you're super, super famous. Mm. So to see that this kind of stayed true to her character or her presented character or her wanted character uh, is really kind of fun and nice. And, yeah, it's a nice little photo shoot and little spread. Mm. So is it powerful because it portrays her in a different way to how we normally see her? Case? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I mean, power is just so – such a you can read power in so many different ways. And I think how we've read Taylor and her football career and – her you know boxing career as well like just her career as an athlete is she is very powerful she's got very powerful imagery that has been used on so much promotional material and I think when we do see her in flight taking a kick or you know with the gloves up to the face like we do think this is a powerful athlete and I think the power in these photos is really different but I don't think it's any less powerful I think to me these images even though they are I guess Stella is a fashion lifestyle magazine. I don't really read it. I'm sorry. I just literally bought the Herald Sun this weekend just for this lift out. Um, 
but I think there is there is power in fashion and there's power in design and there's power in being feminine and there's power in owning it and making it yourself. Um, and I think that she's done that. And I can, like I said before, I think it's such a power in her personality. Like I see, I see her ownership in these photos. And to me, that's just seeing another side of her that she can still be powerful in. And I think that that is, it's just really, it's really cool to see that side of her. And I don't think it, it takes away from her athletic side. I think it just kind of adds more to her character as a person, which I really enjoy seeing. And that's an interesting comment to say, like, potentially it could take away from her athletic side. All of our, like, ultra famous male athletes are now demi-fashion models as mm. well. For MJ so, like, so I'm like, like the NBA, it's all about the red, like essentially the red carpet for every single game. There are like dedicated social channels now where you can follow the styles of Russell Westbrook and LeBron mm. James and who wore it best coming in and all that kind of stuff. But also we see like boxers, like Conor McGregor as an MMA fighter, half his time is spent in fashion shoots and he looks powerful but he's dressed in a suit and no one goes, oh, well, doesn't this take away from him? Like why isn't he being taken as a picture of as a boxer? Well, it's like, well, because he can be both. And mm-hmm. he's powerful because he boxes and then he spends his $12 trillion on, like, 4,000 pieces of Gucci. So, like, <laughs> he'll show off his Gucci. But it's, like, he is a multifaceted character. LeBron is a multifaceted character because he does his, you know, he does his TV shows. He has his production agency. He has his fashion line. He has his shoe line with Nike. He owns, like, 10% of Nike. And so, but no one questions that. No one goes, like, oh, you have to present LeBron is just a basketball player. It's like LeBron is LeBron. But when we do it this situation, it's like, oh, why isn't Taylor Harris in her football gear, like she's an AFLW player. In reality, no, she's Taylor Harris. Mm. She's an AFLW player. She's a stylish fashion person. She has interests in all these things. She has collabed with these other, with these other, yeah, agencies and, and businesses. So she should be allowed to show off all, all facets of herself. Is that why the power stance photo, which is Taylor, blue pants, red top, uh, legs, spread legs, spread legs, man? I would call this a man spread if it was me. You mm-hmm. would call it a man spread if it was me. So the reason. So is that why that's powerful? So the reason why I take umbrage at the term man spread is that it's negative. So I, the reason why I don't think women can man spread is because really, in reality, it should be just a power a power stance. It's a powerful sitting position. The man spread is negative because men wear pants most of the time. So if a woman does that in a dress, which used to be the compulsory. Like clothing of choice, then it becomes uncouth or slutty or all these other negative terms that you get when you're not wearing pants. But if you're wearing pants, it's just a powerful position. And so there have been like, I reckon, at least a thousand photos of men in that, in that position. And it's just, okay, that's a man. Sitting. So it's an equality thing, power yeah. thing. So, it's like, so the fact that we go like, oh, she is manspreading is still kind of the problem. It's like you, you gender the positions, you gender the, the spread, you gender the role of women in, in media, like they can only be an athlete or they can only be a model or they can only be a fashion person or whatever. Not, they can be everything. Whereas if, they, if this was a, like the, I think the extension there is that if this was a male athlete doing a fashion shoot of, you know, hot, hot culture or cool, um, like streetwear, it would go almost unnoticed. It'd be like, cool. Like, did you see Kyrgios's Nike feature in Stella or whatever the male equivalent is? Can't wait to see that one. Be like, it would be like, cool, whatever. Like, yeah. he's a rich dude. He plays tennis. He did a fashion shoot. So she's power dancing. Correct. But yeah, but here it's it, here it's 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 notable and important because there isn't that equality of multifaceted female athletes or female people, public people. Yep. They are still getting seg- segmented into their in, like primary industries. So for you, case we're going to go and move on a little bit to the actual writing of this 
piece. Mm -hmm. So Taylor essentially says in the piece that she's forgiven Seven for initially pulling the photo when they posted it on their social channels, the photo being Michael Wilson's now famous photo. Mm -hmm. Should, as she says, they be forgiven? Is that completely her decision? Um, yes, it's her decision. And I think it's a, like it should just be incumbent on all of us as media consumers to forgive them. I mean, I've forgiven them. And I don't think it's a question of they should be forgiven anyway because I think they did do the right thing in the end, which is they put the photo back up and they apologised. I think they just made a mistake. And I think I've said this a couple of times before when discussing this issue, is that the way in which they handled it, I actually do find like like pretty admirable. Like if I try to put myself in the shoes of a, a social media manager who would have been working at that hour of the day putting up the photos from the weekend, I imagine – those type of roles go to quite young people. So if I, I don't know, took 10 years off my life and put myself into an early 20s social media coordinator role like, and I saw those type of comments come in, like I can easily imagine myself just hitting the panic button and taking it down because I would have thought this is a bad look for the business that I work for. This poor athlete is going to see this. This is disgusting. And I just, I probably would have done the same thing, like if I'm being completely honest. And I think to see an organisation respond to fans in that way like with everyone on social media coming back at them and telling them that they did the wrong thing for them to respond I think pretty quickly like within a couple of hours and put the photo back up and put up a statement that just said that they were sorry I think really does like make everything okay from my eyes because I like to believe we live in a world now that we can make these mistakes because we're in a really complicated time and we're not going to get everything right when it comes to women in sport, when it comes to race in sport, when it comes to identity in sport, when it comes to mental health in sport and a whole other range of issues. Like this is a time now where I think we're all trying to be a bit more aware and a bit more sensitive and a bit more educated. And with that becomes mistakes because we don't have all the answers yet. So this was a mistake, but I think they they fixed it by putting it back up, just saying we're sorry and without any caveats. Like they didn't say we're sorry if we caused offence. We're sorry but we did the right thing that we thought was the right thing or whatever. It was just we're sorry and I think that's huge and I, I was really proud of them for doing that and then also just making like a promise which I think they sort of have stuck to with just that further moderation which is the biggest point to come out of something like this. So I think like you have to forgive in that situation because yes, there was a mistake but it was rectified and you know, something was laid out that has made things for the better. And in kind of in hindsight, it, like in sport, the analogy would be like it was a loss we had to have. Like no team likes to lose, but you lose and you learn from it. Hmm. We don't like to make mistakes, but I think in many ways it was a mistake we had to have because it was, an, it, was a long, it was a long time coming. There'd been a lot of trolling in this space by a lot of people went unaccounted for and they didn't want to act because they were like, well, maybe that was a, it was a reverse fear. Like, oh, if we take it down, then, we, then the trolls win. Hmm. So... All they did was they made the opposite reaction. They went, okay, we've got to take it down. And then, as I said, everyone responded with like, no, 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 you, you did something wrong. And they, all they said was sorry, which is the best part. And it's mm -hmm. like, if that's my key learning from this is that make mistakes and then own them. As you said, you don't have all the yep. answers, but as long as you actually go, I have learned from this and I am sorry, full stop, end of, end of, end of thought, and then move on with your learnings. Mm. That's, that's the way that we, that's yep. where we all get better. So one of the lines in the piece is that Taylor Harris is now synonymous with the unwavering defiance and glass ceiling symbolism displayed in that now world famous photo. So two points to this question. Will this moment, the moment where the photo came out, Seven pulled it down, be as timeless as the piece believes? And is it right to call TH a household name? Well, I don't, like she, okay, second point's probably the easier one for me. 
is that, well, yeah, she is because, like, she's on the front page of a lift-out spread. Like, she is now famous enough for yep. good or bad reasons that people would be interested enough to read a spread on her. So she is a household name to an extent. Like, she's not ultra-famous, but she's famous enough to be a household name. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this story, when it happened, it went worldwide. So, I mean, people in the US and the UK and all across Europe were seeing her face and Mm. seeing that photo. So I think I would definitely say that she's a household name, even if people don't really know her name. Like, they know who she is. Like, she's a female football player Mm. of the AFLW. She plays for Carlton. Like, I think people know enough about her now, and I think that's really... I think that's really positive. Um, The first question, I think, I mean, yeah, I think she's, she's that, she's iconic like that now. And I think that, I think she's as iconic as that photo will be. Like, I do think this is enduring um, just because I don't think we had seen anything like this in this space before. And I think that will stay with people. And I think when people see that image now, they will remember what happened and, whether it's a good or bad thing, I'm not sure yet, but I think when people see that photo of her, they're going to think social media trolls. And for and do better you, Do or, you think, though? Because I think it almost becomes, especially because the AFLW made the move to, like, own that image a little bit, well, yeah. a lot, actually, mm. um, I think that becomes, like, the logo in the NBA. So you look, yeah. at, you look at the NBA and, like, the roots of that are kind of like no one really knows like if we were talking like 40 50 years down the track this is what i'm gonna say i think yeah. long term yes i can see that happening if they do stick with that um i think they should i think they should it's too. a powerful it like is, if you want to yeah. sum up the aflw in an image yeah. that's what it is it's still being feminine but being totally powerful as well like you don't it's not it's like a very easy to go yes look at this awesome league yeah and i think like what I'm saying when I think people look at that photo and they say social media trolls, I don't think it's they think, oh, social media trolling's bad and social media trolls happens. I think that's just like a trigger word to say that someone took a stance against something that we thought was really normal mm. and that we put up with for a long time and they said no. And I think it's not just about Taylor saying no and I'm not putting up with this. It was about a wave of people doing that who had and a lot of those people who actually probably felt really marginalised in their lives and found their voice in an online community that supported women in sport. And I think that's the other story about the AFLW and a lot of women's sporting codes is it brings in a lot of marginalised people who have been excluded from traditionally you know, male sporting spaces that they haven't felt welcome in. And they finally found their voice online by mobilising together and saying this is not good enough and we're not going to stand for it anymore. And I think that's why that image is going to, is going to endure. And I think... Like, whether or not Taylor wants to do it, and she seems at this stage that she's quite happy to put her hand up and play that role and keep that narrative going, which I think is just so admirable of her, considering how young she is and how much, you know, work she does already in her athletic careers. Like, she's taking this on as well. But I think, like, you're right, this is the... This is kind of the loss that needed to happen because I think it's a huge win. And I think having her at the front of it, having that photo, I think it is going to echo through the next few generations as we sort of create this code and sort of bring women's sports history back to the forefront because, unfortunately, we don't have records of a lot of women's sports history that we can look back to a lot of iconic moments. This is something that we have now that's relevant and that's still quite powerful. So I think that's why I was really happy to see a piece like this um, in this magazine at this time of year because it keeps the story going um, and I want to see this story keep being discussed in that way because I think it is really productive and I think it's going to do a lot of really positive work moving forward. 
And coincidentally, I think it fits in really well with our previous conversation on symbolism, is that the people that didn't engage with this went, well, what's the point? It's just a photo. Like, sexism and trolling still exists. What do we achieve by doing it? But actually what we achieve is a whole movement mm-hmm. and people feeling empowered to make change. So things like this movement, the things like Indigenous Round, all these little things that are kind of in isolation, probably a little bit pointless, when they actually are taken within context and allowed to expand and empower people, then we have these conversations, we take, we act, in, we act and create behaviour change, then we have positive outcomes. Mm. So I think all the things we discussed today show that it might just seem like a little thing, but actually it's a big thing in the end. 100%. There are no little things. All things are big things. Uh, I'm going to sit on the wing. I'm going to eat a pie. I'm going to buy a footy record for a dollar.